0: All right, so we are in a new series in 2 Peter. We just finished 1 Peter. 2 Peter is not a continuation of 1 Peter. It's a whole separate letter, but it did most likely anyway come after 1 Peter. And um, Peter, last week we went over Peter's kind of introductory comments, um, but by introductory comments doesn't mean there's no content there. It's actually very... It seems anyway, the way it reads to me, is very painstakingly constructed, and it's really beautiful to read. It's a, there's a lot in there, but now Peter shifts to start talking about kind of the main body of his letter. And if you'd like um, the notes, the sermon notes that I'm actually looking at right now, click on the um, link in the description for the sermon notes. If you already found the lyrics, it's right above that in the description to this video, and you can follow along or just listen along. It's totally up to you. Okay, so um, by this time in church history, Christians are encountering more and more skepticism regarding the various claims of the Christian faith. Um, And you can see this in a couple of places. One we're going to read in just a second. The other is in chapter 3, verse 4, where it shows us that Peter is answering this accusation or criticism from the world that Jesus had claimed that he was coming again. And now Peter, we know, is old and his old age. Is one of the reasons he's writing this letter to begin with is that he thinks he'll die soon, okay? And so it's been a lot of years since Jesus was standing on the ground and said, I'm coming again. And the apostles have been teaching all this time that Jesus is coming again. And so it would make sense that there's this accusation of like, okay, well, where is he, right? He said he was coming. It's been a while. You know, everybody's kind of checking their watches. Like, where is he? We, we've we been working very hard. Now, we know that the reason Jesus hasn't come back, or one of the reasons, is that he put a, gave us a mission, which is to take the gospel to the entire world, every nation, every people, every tribe, every tongue. Turns out that's a harder job than we thought, right? And the world is a bigger place than we thought. and And so this is... Um, that's that's one of the reasons the other reason is god just isn't ready yet okay that's the real reason but but all of that you know there's this accusation so peter's addressing that in this letter and we also see here in our reading for this morning in verse 16 um, let's read that this is second peter 1 verse 16 he says for we did not follow cleverly designed myths you can underline that in your bible it's an important phrase when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. All right? So cleverly designed myths is an interesting phrase. Because it was a commonly used phrase or term in secular writing at that time because in in Greece at the time, one of the things that they would do, especially those in power, they would invent and make up these stories, these myths about the Greek gods about things they had done or things they would command, and they would be like these allegories that they would make up and put out to the population, and the idea was to use these stories to control the people or to make them act right or to make them be good people, and there was a lot of kind of debate going on at the time about whether or not that was a good thing or a bad thing, Okay. And so Peter takes this idea that was kind of in, in the soup of the culture being discussed, and one of the accusations probably was that maybe this whole Jesus coming again, rising from the dead thing, was just one of those stories that the apostles made up or maybe Jesus made up in order to control people, right? Now, you've heard this accusation before, I'm sure, from people today in 2020, that all oh, religion is just this thing made up by powerful people to control people, right? And so Peter's dealing with this question that's coming up in the culture and these accusations now that they didn't have to deal with at the beginning of the church, but now that the church is spread out into foreign cultures, it's an issue they have to deal with, okay? All right, so Peter's going to do two arguments, two main arguments. I'm going to give both of them to you. They're different. But both of them are not only good arguments, but they're super encouraging to us now, okay? So his first argument is to talk about the transfiguration. Let's, he brings it up in verse 16, which we already read. Now let's read verses 17 and 18. He says, this is 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 17 and 18. For when he received, he being Jesus, for when he received honor and glory from God the Father... And the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, that would be God the Father, saying, quote, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Okay, so this phrase, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, is probably familiar to you. It's in two places. God says it in t- at two times over Jesus one was at his baptism. Or his voice came out of the heavens and everybody heard it when Jesus was baptized. And the second time was that the transfiguration. And this is what Peter's referring to right here is the now this story, and we're gonna a lot of people haven't heard it, so we're gonna read the story in just a second. It's amazing. Okay? It might be the most kind of visibly supernatural thing in the Bible. Okay? Um, certainly the resurrection of Lazarus and Jesus are amazing, Um, but this is like the most sort of sci-fi thing in the Bible, and it's, so I want to encourage you as I read this story, it's, it's very short, just imagine what it would be like to be Peter, because Peter's an eyewitness to what happens. Peter was standing there when he saw this, and he is, he's now using that as one of his evidences. So here's the story, it's in Matthew chapter 17, it's just verses 1 through 8. And it says, after six days, Jesus took him with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Now, Moses and Elijah, if you don't know your Bible characters those dudes have been dead for a very long time okay they're the great prophets of israel who have been gone for a long time so there they are talking with him and verse four and peter said now this is our boy peter who's wrote wrote second peter and first peter always sharp as a tack he says to jesus lord it is good that we are here if you wish i will make three tents here one for you one for moses and one for elijah he was still speaking when behold, a I love that he, that detail's in there. He was still talking, so he's still just rambling on about what they should do and how he should make tents for everybody to hang out in. And he's just rambling, totally doesn't understand what's going on, when really he should be on his knees like freaking out. And in the middle of him blathering on, Peter says to Jesus, uh, excuse me, um, verse 5, he was still speaking when behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. What? I said, Just take a minute to take that in. This really actually happened. Okay? This is not something someone made up for, you know, a movie or a good story. This actually happened in real life. Okay? Jesus was transfigured, which means his appearance changed, but his who he, he he himself and his essence didn't change. It's a word I don't know if anybody uses ever for anything but this. So his appearance changed, and it wasn't that he himself fundamentally changed in some way, it's that. Who he actually is was visible, okay? And that's how Peter interprets this event. Peter was there, okay? He was an eyewitness. This is not a story he heard about Jesus. This is not a story that he read about Jesus. This is something he saw himself personally standing there watching it happen. So Peter's first reason for bringing this up as an answer to this accusation of, is Jesus really coming back? Um, is all, are all these stories just made up to control people? His first answer is, I was there, right? This really actually happened. I saw it with my own eyes, which is a powerful argument. Is your eyewitness testimony of what and who God is. Secondly, Peter sees this event as a prophetic foreshadowing of what's to come. He sees Jesus, Moses, and Elijah, they are they are all still around. They are alive and well. They are not when we die, we don't just become dust and disappear. When we die, we live on. We are eternal beings. And Jesus and Moses and Elijah are still around, and God's plan is still in effect. This life, this physical life is not the only aspect of our reality is not our ultimate reality we are both physical and spiritual beings okay and thirdly and probably most importantly is that peter saw with his own eyes the visible manifestation of jesus's divinity he saw with his own eyes that jesus is more than a man he is something more he is something greater he saw However you can imagine seeing the divinity of Christ, Peter saw it. Peter saw that the, the divine power in a visibly perceptible way. And after seeing that, can there be any doubt that Jesus would return as he promised? Okay? If, Peter, if Peter saw who Jesus really was, kind of revealed visibly, then there's no doubt. Can there be any doubt that that guy can come again? That death can't hold him? That's who Jesus is. And even though he has flesh and bone and he was crucified, he has more than that. He is greater than that, and he is more powerful than that. Okay, so the next, the second argument Peter gives is he mentions the prophetic word. Let's read this, verses 19 through 21. He says, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, meaning what he's, the prophetic word, which he's going to describe in just a minute, is more powerful, more, um, you can bank on it even more than what he just described, which is kind of crazy, All right? The most crazy sort of sci-fi supernatural thing anyone's ever seen doesn't, is great, but it doesn't measure up to what he's about to say. all of these prophecies, the scriptures of the what we call now the Old Testament, okay? And all these predictions of all sorts of things that are going to happen. And I, so what I want to do is I want to talk about a few of them, okay? There are hundreds of them. I am not going to do hundreds of fulfilled prophecies from the Old Testament. What I'm, what I'm going to narrow it a little bit by just talking about prophecies f- fulfilled by Jesus himself, okay? That narrows it a lot, and there's still, I don't know how many, it's 50 plus, which I'm not going to do. I'm only going to do a handful. I've got 10 in the notes. I'm not going to read each one of these. I'm just going to skim over them just to give you like a, 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 a machine gun um, spattering of fulfilled prophecies by Jesus to build your faith. And this is what Peter does. He says, look, if you, you, don't, if you don't believe me and what I saw." Look at all this stuff that's been written down hundreds and sometimes thousands of years ahead of time before Jesus ever fulfilled it. And you tell me that's not a down payment on God's promises that he will return. All right, let's look at a few of these. One is Genesis 3.15. It says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Okay, so he's talking to Eve. This is one of the curses of the fall after they sinned. And he's talking about Eve and the snake, okay? And he said, I'm going to put enmity between you. and you're, you're going to be at odds with each other forever. But then he squee-slips in this, this promise, okay, where he says, he. So from Eve will come a male offspring that will do what? He will um, bruise... He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So he says, Jesus, right, that's who fulfills that quiet little prophecy there, that promise that he will crush Satan under his heel. Then we have genealogies. We could look at really all the genealogies in the Old Testament. Um, a good example is Genesis 12, 3 and Genesis 17, 19, where God says that, Jesus or the Messiah is going to come from Isaac's family line starting back with Abraham, okay? And then if you look at all the genealogies all the way up to Matthew, you, you can trace a line from Abraham through Isaac all the way to Jesus. That's amazing. 1,400 years ago that prophecy started. Think about what, would have to, what God had to orchestrate in order to draw a straight line from Isaac to Jesus. That's crazy. And if you look at the Old Testament, in many ways that is the story of the Old Testament, is people carrying this covenant with God, not really valuing it or understanding it very well, and sometimes trying to give it away, like quite literally. Or uh, enemies coming against that covenant bearer, and trying to destroy them and wipe out the covenant like in the book of Esther. That's what that book of Esther is about. And you see this story over and over and over again of God coming and carefully carrying these fragile, sometimes block-headed humans along, carrying this priceless promise where all of the redemption of all of humanity is being carried in them in their bloodline, and them just trying to constantly blow it. And God carries them along one generation after another all the way up to Jesus. It is astounding to think about. Isaiah 7 prophesies the virgin birth. That's amazing. Micah 5.2 said that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, which is the, okay, Bethlehem is this tiny, it's, you know, it's a podunk town. It's not a. It's not like Rome, okay? It's not. This is like if you were gonna prophesy and like make up a prophecy about where the Messiah one day would be born. You would not pick Bethlehem, okay? You would. You might not even be aware of Bethlehem. It's like saying one day the Messiah will be born in Kernersville, North Carolina. I, I'm not against. I'm not picking on Kernersville. I live here. But let's be honest, it's not a metropolis of the world. This is what Bethlehem is. And here's what's crazy about that, okay? Jesus' parents didn't live in Bethlehem. They were from Nazareth, which is even a smaller town. And so how do you get the, the, the mother of Jesus, the virgin mother of Jesus, from her hometown of Nazareth to Bethlehem, so that the Messiah can be born in Bethlehem to fulfill this prophecy from 700 years before. Well, God brought it fast so that they had to leave Nazareth to pay their taxes in Bethlehem and gather there because they would pull everybody in to pay their taxes. And while they're there, being forced to go there, not even of their own will, she has the baby Jesus. Isaiah 53, we could read, there's, I don't know how many, there's tons of fulfillments there. You could really focus on Isaiah 53 by itself. That's the chapter we always read around Christmas. That was 700 BC. There's, I don't know how it's like, at least 10 plus fulfillments that Jesus did in Isaiah 53 alone. Isaiah 35 talks about the signs, prophesies the signs of the Messiah's coming, the miracles that he would perform, and these are the signs that John the Baptist wanted to, was interested in seeing fulfilled when he asked Jesus about it in Matthew 11, where he's starting to doubt whether or not Jesus is the Messiah. He was convinced first, now he's in prison, and he's wondering, is this really the guy? Because he's not what I expected. He sends a messenger to ask, are you really the Messiah? And Jesus' answer was to list off these signs of the coming of the Messiah said, I Have not done each one of these? It's amazing. It shows us a couple of things. One is that Jesus was very much aware of what he was doing. Zechariah 9 prophesies Palm Sunday that he would come on the foal of a donkey. Zechariah 11 12 through 13 said that Jesus would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, that they would even be thrown in the house of God. Look at this, verse 12. He says, Then I said to them, If it seems good to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. And they weighed out as my wages 30 pieces of silver. Then the Lord said to me, Throw it to the potter, the lordly price at which I was priced by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord. To the potter. That's what happened to Judas Iscariot. Psalm 22, they would cast lots for his clothes. That happened right after Jesus' death. The soldiers down there are taking his clothes and gambling for who would get them. Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. That has yet to come. It happened. The down payment of it happened at the the resurrection, and this is what we're waiting for. It's what the book of Revelation talks about. So, this is Peter's second argument. And we could go on and on and on, especially if you take, take, you know, broaden your search of the Old Testament prophecies to not include just the stuff Jesus himself fulfilled, but just think about human history. It's amazing. The Bible is completely unique in this way. Christianity is completely unique in this way. It is not a catalog of the opinions of mankind, which is what the accusation always is. The Bible's a good book, but it's just people's opinions. You misunderstand who God is and what the scriptures are when you say that. Instead, the human authors were carried along by the Spirit in their writing. That's what verse twenty-one tells us. They were. So it's like imagine like um, Moses being picked up by the Holy Spirit in his hands and just being carried along like this, and told, "This is what I want you to say." All those prophets being picked up and carried along. You can also read books like Daniel, Ezekiel, and Revelation regarding just prophecies about history and what's to come. And so here's my question if God is this in control of human history, why do you not believe that He's in control of your future? What is your big problem about tomorrow if all of human history is disordered by God behind you? God plays world events and the events of your life like an instrument in the hand of a maestro. This is what human history is to God. It is not a random series of events. It is God playing the world like a fiddle or a violin, excuse me. To those of you who prefer to play violin, Elisa. He is expertly orchestrating your life, others' lives, Nations and peoples to bring about his purposes for his glory and our good. Nothing escapes his hand. Nothing escapes his control. Absolutely nothing. So why do we worry about tomorrow? <laughs> and why do we worry about what the world thinks? You see, these two things that Peter brings up kind of have a dual purpose. One is to, to be, I think, a convincing arguments against this accusation that, oh, Jesus is not going to come back. It's all just made up myths and stuff, and it's all just who he does not matter. He says, wait a minute. One, I was there. I saw him. I saw him transfigured. I saw his divinity. And you can't tell me that what I saw isn't a down payment of on, on what's to come. But he also says, okay, but if you won't believe me, what about all of history? Right? It's not just the Bible. This is not... This is not how the apostles saw the world. They didn't see the world as a bunch of religions with Christianity in the middle of it, and the Bible is just their book. The Bible is not just the Christian book. The Bible is the record of God's purposes and His sovereignty and His power throughout all of human history. It is the reality of the situation. It is not just one perspective on reality. He says, look at this. This is what God has done throughout history. He taught started this thing and then he told us what he was going to do not just the day before not just the hour before and not just as he was doing it he told us what he was going to do four thousand years ahead of time and he did it to the detail and why is he doing he's doing it for his own purposes for his glory and for our good So these two pieces of evidence also work as an assurance of your own faith. If you just see these as arguments against people who are mocking God, then you miss part of the point of him writing this letter. It's because this is deeply comforting to us. Isn't it comforting to know that there's an order and a purpose to your life and to the things going on around you that is beyond you. So you remember what you've seen God do in your life, starting with your own salvation. Because there is a sense in which when you became a Christian, you saw in faith that same transfiguration. You saw Jesus for who he is. He was revealed to you in all his glory. And you went, ugh. Well, this is not just a story that someone made up, that my parents made up when I was a little kid or or whatever. This is the reality of not just who Jesus is, but the whole universe. Everything, the meaning of everything has shifted and changed, and I see it now because I see him. So you remember that, and you remind yourself of what you know to be true, what you have seen with your own eyes, and you remind yourself of all the things that God has done in your life where he's intervened and shown up for you over time and where he's shown up for the people that you love and that you know, your family and your friends, your church. You remember the miracles. And then you stand on the authority of the word of God and you remind yourself of what God has said he will do. Because, and he is faithful. He has been faithful to always do what he said he would do. And he will always be into the future. This is how you stand secure. It's not just how you argue with people. <laughs> it's not just how you stand firm in your faith against the world. It is also how you are assured of your own faith personally. And how you stay encouraged. I said to you many times. If your hope is based in your circumstances or in hoping things get better, it's a weak hope. And this is where you found your hope. And Peter gets at this over and over and over again. So your witness, your eyewitness of where, where, what you have seen of God and his glory and the word of God itself. So I would like to pray for you that the Holy Spirit would take these two simple things, and establish them in your heart. That you would not only be able to stand against the mockery of a world that doesn't quite understand what it is we're all about, and only wants to see the Christian faith and the Word of God as just one perspective among many, but it would, you would also be able to stand and that it would be an assurance to your own faith as you, we walk out, and is very difficult in weird times. Amen? So let's pray. Holy Spirit, I ask you right now to <clears throat> just visit everyone watching now and into the future. God, that you would, wherever they are right now, whether they're in their car, driving down the road, or sitting at home, in the middle of a restaurant even, Holy Spirit, would you just intervene, interrupt them, and be present with them, and bring to mind... All the things you've done for them. God, that it would be as though you are being transfigured before them right now. That they would see you for who you are, not just in your humanity, but also in your divinity. And God, I also pray that you would establish them in your word, establish them in your promises. God, reassure them that you are coming again, that you will return. And in the meantime, you are with them by your spirit. You're not far away. You're present. God, I pray that you would establish these things in all of us so they cannot be shaken. In the name of Jesus, amen. All right, love you guys. We'll see you next week.